Chapter 6, Part 3 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. To this temple, as to the common center of religious worship, the imperial fanatic attempted to remove the Ancilia, the Palladium, and all the sacred pledges of the faith of Numa. A crowd of inferior deities attended in various stations the majesty of the god of Amessa, but his court was still imperfect, till a female of distinguished rank was admitted to his bed. Pallas had first been chosen for his consort, but it was dreaded that her warlike terrors might affright the soft delicacy of a Syrian deity. The moon, adored by the Africans under the name of Astarte, was deemed a more suitable companion for the sun. Her image, with the rich offerings of her temple, as a marriage portion, was transported with solemn pomp from Carthage to Rome, and the day of these mystic nuptials was a general festival in the capital and throughout the empire. A rational voluptuary adheres with invariable respect to the temperate dictates of nature, and improves the gratifications of sense by social intercourse, endearing connections, and the soft coloring of taste and imagination. But Elagalibus, I speak of the emperor of that name, corrupted by his youth, his country, and his fortune, abandoned himself to the grossest pleasures with ungoverned fury, and soon found disgust and satiety in the midst of his enjoyments. The inflammatory powers of art were summoned to his aid. The confused multitude of women, of wines, and of dishes, and the studied variety of attitudes and sauces, served to revive his languid appetites. New terms and new inventions in these sciences, the only ones cultivated and patronized by the monarch, signalized his reign and transmitted his infamy to succeeding times. A capricious prodigality supplied the want of taste and elegance, and whilst Elagalibus lavished away the treasures of his people in the wildest extravagance, his own voice and that of his flatterers applauded a spirit and magnificence unknown to the tameness of his predecessors. To confound the order of seasons and climates, to sport with the passions and prejudices of his subjects, and to subvert every law of nature and decency, were in the number of his most delicious amusements. A long train of concubines, and a rapid succession of wives, among whom was a vestal virgin, ravished by force from her sacred asylum, were insufficient to satisfy the impotence of his passions. The master of the Roman world affected to copy the dress and manners of the female sex, preferred the distaff to the scepter, and dishonored the principal dignities of the empire by distributing them among his numerous lovers, one of whom was publicly invested with the title and authority of the emperors, or, as he more properly styled himself, of the empress's husband. It may seem probable the vices and follies of Elagalibus have been adorned by fancy and blackened by prejudice. Yet, confining ourselves to the public scenes displayed before the Roman people, and attested by grave and contemporary historians. Their inexpressible infamy suppresses that of any other country or age. The license of an eastern monarch is secluded from the eye of curiosity by the inaccessible walls of the seraglio. The sentiments of honor and gallantry have introduced a refinement of pleasure, a regard for decency, and a respect for the public opinion into the modern courts of Europe. But the corrupt and opulent nobles of Rome gratified every vice that could be collected from the mighty conflux of nations and manners. Secure of impunity, 
careless of censure, they lived without restraint in the patient and humble society of their slaves and parasites. The emperor, in his turn, viewing every rank of his subjects with the same contemptuous indifference, asserted without control his sovereign privilege of lust and luxury. The most worthless of mankind are not afraid to condemn in others the same disorders which they allow in themselves, and correctly discover some nice differences of age, character, or station to justify the partial distinction. The licentious soldiers, who had raised to the throne the dissolute son of Caracalla, blushed at their ignominious choice, and turned with disgust from that monster to contemplate with pleasure the opening virtues of his cousin Alexander, the son of Mamaya. The crafty Misa, sensible that her grandson Elagalibus must inevitably destroy himself by his own vices, had provided another and surer support of her family. Embracing a favorable moment of fondness and devotion, she had persuaded the young emperor to adopt Alexander, and to invest him with the title of Caesar, that his own divine occupations might be no longer interrupted by the care of the earth. In the second rank, that amiable prince soon acquired the affections of the public, and excited the tyrant's jealousy, who resolved to terminate the dangerous competition, either by corrupting the manners, or by taking away the life of his rival. His arts proved unsuccessful, his vain designs were constantly discovered by his own loquacious folly, and disappointed by those virtuous and faithful subjects whom the prudence of Memaya had placed above the persons of her son. In a hasty sally of passion, Elagalibus resolved to execute by force what he had been unable to compass by fraud, and by a despotic sentence degraded his cousin from the rank and honors of Caesar. The message was received in the Senate with silence, and in the camp with fury. The Praetorian guards swore to protect Alexander, and to revenge the dishonored majesty of the throne. The tears and promises of the trembling Elagalibus, who only begged them to spare his life and to leave him in the possession of his beloved Heracles, diverted their just indignation, and they contented themselves with empowering their prefects to watch over the safety of Alexander and the conduct of the emperor. It was impossible that such a reconciliation should last, or that even the mean soul of Elagalibus could hold an empire on such humiliating terms of dependence. He soon attempted, by a dangerous experiment, to try the temper of the soldiers. The report of the death of Alexander, and the natural suspicion that he had been murdered, inflamed their passions into fury, and the tempest of the camp could only be appeased by the presence and authority of the popular youth. Provoked at this new instance of their affection for his cousin, and their contempt for his person, the emperor ventured to punish some of the leaders of the mutiny. His unseasonable severity proved instantly fatal to his minions, his mother, and himself. Elagalibus was massacred by the indignant Praetorians, his mutilated corpse dragged through the streets of the city, and thrown into the Tiber. His memory was branded with eternal infamy by the Senate, and the justice of whose decree has been ratified by posterity. In the room of Elagalibus, his cousin Alexander was raised to the throne by the Praetorian guards. His relation to the family of Severus, whose name he assumed, was the same as that of his predecessor. His virtue and his danger had already endeared him to the Romans and the eager liberality of the Senate conferred upon him in one day the various titles and powers of the imperial dignity. But, as Alexander was a modest and dutiful youth, and only seventeen years of age, the reins of government were in the hands of two women, his mother, Memaya, 
and of Mysa, his grandmother. After the death of the latter, who survived but a short time the elevation of Alexander, Mimaya remained the sole regent of her son and of the empire. In every country and age, the wiser, or at least the stronger of the two sexes, has usurped the powers of the state, and confined the others to the cares and pleasures of domestic life. In hereditary monarchies, however, and especially in those of modern Europe, the gallant spirit of chivalry and the law of secession have accustomed us to allow a singular exception, and a woman has often acknowledged the absolute sovereign of a great kingdom, in which she would be deemed incapable of exercising the smallest employment, civil or military. But as the Roman emperors were still considered as the generals and magistrates of the Republic, their wives and mothers, although distinguished by the name of Augusta, were never associated to their personal honors, and a female reign would have appeared an inexpiable prodigy in the eyes of those primitive Romans, who married without love, or who loved without delicacy and respect. The haughty Agrippina aspired, indeed, to share the honors of the empire, which she had conferred on her son, but her mad ambition, detested by every citizen who felt for the dignity of Rome, was disappointed by the artful firmness of Seneca and Burrhus. The good sense, or the indifference of succeeding princes, restrained them from offending the prejudices of their subjects, and it was reserved for the profligate Elagalibus to disgrace the acts of the Senate with the name of his mother, Somaius, who was placed by the side of the consuls and subscribed, as a regular member, the decrees of the legislative assembly. Her more prudent sister, Mimaya, declined the useless and odious prerogative, and a solemn law was enacted, excluding women forever from the Senate, and devoting to the infernal gods the head of the wretch by whom this sanction should be violated. The substance, not the pageantry of power, was the object of Mamaya's manly ambition. She maintained an absolute and lasting empire over the mind of her son, and in his affection the mother could not brook a rival. Alexander, with her consent, married the daughter of a patrician, but his respect for his father-in-law and love for the empress were inconsistent with the tenderness or interest in Mamaya. The patrician was executed on the ready accusation of treason, and the wife of Alexander was driven with ignominy from the palace and banished into Africa. Notwithstanding this act of jealous cruelty, as well as some instances of avarice, with which Mamaya is charged, the general tenor of her administration was equally for the benefit of her son and of the empire. With the approbation of the Senate, she chose sixteen of the wisest and most virtuous senators, as a perpetual consul of state, before whom every public business of moment was debated and determined. The celebrated Opian, equally distinguished by his knowledge of and his respect for the laws of Rome, was at their head, and the prudent firmness of this aristocracy restored order and authority to the government. As soon as they had purged the city from foreign superstition and luxury, the remains of the capricious tyranny of Alagalibus, they applied themselves to remove his worthless creatures from every department of the public administration, and to supply their places with men of virtue and ability. Learning and the love of justice became the only recommendation for civil offices, valor and the love of discipline the only qualification for military appointments. But the most important care of Amaya and her wise counselors was to form the character of the young emperor, on whose personal qualities the happiness or misery of the Roman world must ultimately depend. The fortunate soil assisted and even prevented the hand of cultivation. An excellent understanding soon convinced Alexander of the advantages of virtue, 
the pleasure of knowledge, and the necessity of labor. A natural mildness and moderation of temper preserved him from the assaults of passion and the allurements of vice. His unalterable regard for his mother and his esteem for the wise Ulpian guarded his inexperienced youth from the poison of flattery. The simple journal of his ordinary occupations exhibits a pleasing picture of an accomplished emperor, and, with some allowance for the difference of manners, might well deserve the imitation of modern princes. Alexander rose early. The first moments of the day were consecrated to private devotion, and his domestic chapel was filled with the images of those heroes who, by improving or reforming human life, had deserved the grateful reverence of posterity. But, as he deemed the service of mankind the most acceptable worship of the gods, the greatest part of his morning hours was employed in his council, where he discussed public affairs and determined private causes with a patience and discretion above his years. The dryness of business was relieved by the charms of literature, and a portion of time was always set apart for his favorite studies of poetry, history, and philosophy. The works of Virgil and Horace, the republics of Plato and Cicero, formed his taste, enlarged his understanding, and gave him the noblest ideas of man and government. The exercises of the body seceded to those of the mind, and Alexander, who was tall, active, and robust, surpassed most of his equals in the gymnastic arts. Refreshed by the use of the bath, and a slight dinner, he resumed with new vigor the business of the day, and, till the hour of supper, the principal meal of the Romans, he was attended by his secretaries, with whom he read and answered the multitude of letters, memorials, and petitions that must have been addressed to the master of the greatest part of the world. His table was served with the most frugal simplicity, and whenever he was at liberty to consult his own inclination, the company consisted of a few select friends, men of learning and virtue, amongst whom Ulpian was constantly invited. Their conversation was familiar and instructive, and the pauses were occasionally enlivened by the recital of some pleasing composition, which supplied the place of dancers and comedians, and even gladiators, so frequently summoned to the tables of the rich and luxurious Romans. The dress of Alexander was plain and modest, his demeanor courteous and affable. At the proper hours his palace was open to all his subjects, but the voice of a crier was heard, as in the Eleusian mysteries, pronouncing the same salutary admonition. Let none enter these holy walls, unless he is conscious of a pure and innocent mind. Such an uniform tenor of life, which left not a moment for vice or folly, is a better proof of the wisdom and justice of Alexander's government than all the trifling details preserved in the compilations of Limpridius. Since the accession of Commodus, the Roman world had experienced, during a term of forty years, the successive and various vices of four tyrants. From the death of Elagalibus, it had enjoyed an auspicious calm of thirteen years. The provinces, relieved from the oppressive taxes invented by Caracalla and his pretended son, flourished in peace and prosperity under the administration of magistrates, who were convinced by experience that to deserve the love of the subjects was their best and only method of obtaining the favor of their sovereign. While some gentle restraints were imposed on the innocent luxury of the Roman people, the price of provisions and the interest of money were reduced by the paternal care of Alexander, whose prudent liberality, without distressing the industrious, supplied the wants and amusements of the populace. The dignity, the freedom, the authority of the Senate was restored, and every virtuous senator might approach the person of the emperor without a fear and without a blush. The name of Antoninus, ennobled by the virtues of Pius and Marcus, 
had been communicated by adoption to the dissolute Verus, and by descent to the cruel Commodus. It became the honorable appellation of the sons of Severus, was bestowed on young Diadumenianus, and at length prostituted to the infamy of the high priest of Emesa. Alexander, though pressed by the studied and perhaps sincere importunity of the Senate, nobly refused the borrowed luster of a name, whilst in his whole conduct he labored to restore the glory and felicity of the age of the genuine Antonines. In the civil administration of Alexander, wisdom was enforced by power, and the people, sensible of the public felicity, repaid their benefactor with their love and gratitude. There still remained a greater, a more necessary, but more difficult enterprise, the reformation of the military order, whose interest and temper, confirmed by long impunity, rendered them impatient of the restraints of discipline, and careless of the blessings of public tranquility. On the execution of his design, the emperor affected to display his love and to conceal his fear of the army. The most rigid economy in every other branch of the administration supplied a fund of gold and silver for the ordinary pay and the extraordinary rewards of the troops. In their marches, he relaxed the severe obligation of carrying seventeen days' provisions on their shoulders. Ample magazines were formed along the public roads, and as soon as they entered the enemy's country, a numerous train of mules and camels waited on their haughty laziness. As Alexander despaired of correcting the luxury of his soldiers, he attempted, at least, to direct it to objects of martial pomp and ornament. Fine horses, splendid armor, and shields enriched with silver and gold. He shared whatever fatigues he was obliged to impose, visited, in person, the sick and wounded, preserved an exact register of their services and his own gratitude, and expressed, on every occasion, the warmest regard for a body of men whose welfare, as he affected to declare, was so closely connected with that of the state. By the most gentle arts he labored to inspire the fierce multitude with a sense of duty, and to restore at least a faint image of that discipline to which the Romans owed their empire over so many other nations as warlike and more powerful than themselves. But his prudence was vain, his courage fatal, and the attempt towards a reformation served only to inflame the ills it was meant to cure. The Praetorian guards were attached to the youth of Alexander. They loved him as a tender pupil, whom they had saved from a tyrant's fury and placed on the imperial throne. That amiable prince was sensible of the obligation, but, as his gratitude was restrained within the limits of reason and justice, they soon were more dissatisfied with the virtues of Alexander than they had ever been with the vices of Elagalibus. Their prefect, the wise Ulpian, was a friend of the laws and of the people. He was considered as the enemy of the soldiers and his pernicious counsels, every scheme of reformation was imputed. Some trifling accident blew up their discontent into a furious mutiny, and a civil war raged during three days in Rome, whilst the life of that excellent minister was defended by the grateful people. Terrified at length by the sight of some houses in flames, and by the threats of a general conflagration, the people yielded with a sigh, and left the virtuous but unfortunate opium to his fate. He was pursued into the imperial palace, and massacred at the feet of his master, who vainly strove to cover him with the purple, and to obtain his pardon from the inexorable soldiers. Such was the deplorable weakness of government, that the emperor was unable to revenge his murdered friend and his insulted dignity, without stooping to the arts of patience and dissimulation. Apagathus, the principal leader of the mutiny, was removed from Rome by the honorable employment of prefect of Egypt. From that high rank he was gently degraded to the government of Crete, and when, at length, his popularity among the guards was effaced by time and absence, 
Alexander ventured to inflict the tardy but deserved punishment of his crimes. Under the reign of a just and virtuous prince, the tyranny of the army threatened with instant death his most faithful ministers, who were suspected of an intention to correct their intolerable disorders. The historian, Dion Cassius, had commanded the Pannonian legions with the spirit of ancient discipline. Their brethren of Rome, embracing the common cause of military license, demanded the head of the reformer. Alexander, however, instead of yielding to their seditious clamors, showed a just sense of his merit and services by appointing him his colleague in the consulship and defraying from his own treasury the expense of that vain dignity. But, as it was justly apprehended, that if the soldiers beheld him with the ensigns of his office, they would revenge the insult in his blood, the nominal first magistrate of the state retired, by the emperor's advice, from the city, and spent the greatest part of his consulship at his villas and Campania. End of chapter 6, part 3